Hello, friends, and welcome to the Brother Cousins Podcast. We appreciate so much that you've made time to spend with us today, and we hope that the episode that we have for you today will be uh, interesting, will be glorifying to God most of all, and will help you grow as you seek to be a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this episode is 112, and we are continuing our series of Explorations of Psalms. So last week, if you didn't catch that, we dug down into Psalm 139. Jeffrey led us through a uh, exploration of that psalm. It was really interesting. And we uh, hinted last week that we were going to do Psalm 2, and that is what we we're going to do today. So this is a psalm that is really near and dear to Jared's heart. Jared is going to kind of take the reins and walk us through this one, and, and Jeffrey and I are going to spout off what we think along the way. So um, hang on for the ride, Jared. Uh, I really appreciate that you brought this psalm. There's so much here. Um, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's the second one of the book, so a lot of people have probably read it as they, you know, after they memorized the first psalm. So I imagine this is going to be pretty familiar to a lot of our listeners, but um, how do you want to start? Do you want to tell us what got you interested in this psalm, or do you want to just start by reading the first verse and, and jumping in? I, I actually want to start with why I chose this one in particular. There was right. a point last week where I wanted to bring this up, but I, I just decided I would use Psalm 2 to make this point, kind of piggybacking off of some stuff we talked about last week, and that is a perspective that the Psalms can give us. And as we understand God dealing with people, God dealing with humanity, God evidencing his covenant faithfulness to humanity, this psalm captures a lot of the ideas and gives us what the Hebrew people would have been looking for as they progressed through history, as they were living the history that we read today. And one of the things that they looked for and the things they testified to over and over again in the Psalms was this coming kingdom and the judge, the king that would be the judge. And they had a very different perspective than we do. We, we often, especially within our fellowship, look at God as the judge in a criminal trial that's going to judge us and sentence us. They looked at God as in a civil suit where they were seeking damages against someone else and seeking justice against other people. That makes sense. And we see some of that typified in this Psalm. We see the coming kingdom. We see the King that is going to set earth right again. And that this promise was given by God and the world has raged against it and, and sought to exploit it and to ignore it and to overcome it. But there was no stopping God's coming King. And we're living the fulfillment of those promises. But as we start this Psalm out, The psalm says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And this is just chock full of truths that we could pick apart. I've got three that are top of mind that we could spend the, the duration of the episode talking about. But the first is the question, and, and you could even boil it down to, why does humanity take so many vain stances? And he's speaking here specifically about rulers, but it is an archetype or a typification of what we do ourselves all the time. The rulers of the world plot in vain, seeking to burst God's bonds and to cast his cords away from us as if we can rule ourselves. And as I have mentioned over and over and over again, it's, it's the, the sin that Eve and maybe more specifically Adam was guilty of in the garden. So we just, we find ourselves living in this perpetual cycle of trying to be our own ruler, our own gods. And so the psalmist asked the question, why, why do we do this? 
Fair question. And we see God's response in this because, and, and one thing I love, and we could even get into to Romans 1 again with this, into the book of Galatians and Ephesians with this, of God's covenant faithfulness. And that is an aspect I think a lot of people don't appreciate when considering what they have been told about God and they view God, especially those that view him through lenses of, you know, there's a different God, Old Testament to New Testament, or, or God's different characteristics demonstrated in the Old Covenant and the New Covenants, older covenants and the New Covenant. God has always been about this plan and has, has always been seeking to bring his kingdom into fruition. And he has always, for all time, been faithful to his word. And, and you capture that in this first verse, plot in vain. There, there's nothing that's going to stop God's counsel and God's decision to set his king upon the throne. And he hits that in verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that's a declaration of a promise made to Abraham and promises made to David and prophecies made that there would be a king rise from the house of David that would be set on the throne forever. Yeah, I think it's interesting there, Jared, that there's a, a sharp contrast drawn here between the rulers of the world and the, and the age who resist God because they, they don't honor him. And then God's like, oh, you're going to disrespect me. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to set up my king. And, and the best part about it is, and he says, and then I'm going to tell that king, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. And I, I just think that that's a sharp contrast there. It's it's a very um, interesting passage. And there's some more interesting things there I want to dig in, but I don't want to totally derail your line of thought. <laughs> so one thing I really want to just pull out of the early part of this passage is this covenant faithfulness of God. And, and I know, you know, use that term several times, but, it's it's typified in this passage. And, and again, we see it throughout the Psalms over and over again. But we can complain about it. We can kick and scream. We can just ignore. But there's a greater truth given here that God's plans cannot be foiled by man. And in the circles that I tend to read uh, one of those is, is Calvinism and there's this war seeming war between God's sovereignty and free moral agency of man right. that man cannot be a free moral agent in the way that we would think and God still be sovereign and there's another thought that if God knows the end of the thing from the beginning then he plans every step in between and that's not necessarily the case God didn't plan on these kings being evil and having to punish them. It's just that they can't stop his end result. That he is going to triumph overall, and his king will be set in his holy hill. And we see this coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. And we see specifically that's what this passage is talking about. As he mentioned in verse 7, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so there's there's no question what this is talking about. There's no question about the kingdom that's being prophesied here and, and sought after and longed for, I think, even. Yeah. As men look on the nations that are around them and how they forsake God, how they, they spurn God's blessings and his love, and they're looking for this king that's going to set things right, that is going to restore order back to God's creation and is going to rule under the authority of God, the creator and the sovereign. 
So Jared, do you, do you think that this, like, I don't know when this Psalm was authored and I don't know by whom it was authored. Do you think that there's a sense in which this Psalm is, is referring in the short term to David or Solomon? And then there's a, there's a partial fulfillment that we see probably more likely David that, in the middle of all these people, these peoples rebelling against the the people of you know God inhabiting Canaan, right? They all ganging up on Israel, but David was given triumph over his enemies, and he subdued them, and they you know brought him tribute. I mean, so you think there's a sense in which this is all, this is talking about David now, um, and he's fulfilling it as a shadow of the ultimate fulfillment that we'll see and are seeing in Christ. I definitely think there's a sense in which it would have been relayed to David and kingdoms or uh, Hebrews would have looked at this like David was fulfilling this maybe in a shadow, but it, it was called out specifically in the New Testament that Jesus is about whom this was spoken, that he is yeah. this king. And I don't have a problem with it being a shadow. And I'm, I'm like, you have no idea when it was written. I am am not a Hebrew scholar in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So I, I have not dug in to figure out who wrote this or who could have written it and so forth. But, but we see these kings, especially godly kings, rise up to execute God's judgment. Josiah is another one that comes to mind. Yeah. Who rises up to execute God's judgment even within Israel. But this is definitely speaking to something greater. And I think as you get into the kings of the earth, I mean, this is this is something transcendent of what they understand in, in their part of the world. This is going to be something that is undeniable that is evident in every corner of everywhere. And I think we get, which of course we see things that are echoed and cleared up in the new Testament. But as he hits verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And there's some notes of Daniel seven in that there's, there's notes of the, the new Testament and the, out and out proclamation of Jesus of his authority. Once he has resurrected that all power is given to me in heaven and in earth, that he is the King. Yeah. There's, there's Daniel seven in there. There's also uh, Daniel two, when he talks about, uh, well, actually Psalm two, nine, you'll break them with a rod of iron. That's uh, Revelation 2, Revelation 12, Revelation 19. John uses that imagery over and over, uh, which I think is a definite clue that uh, Psalm 2 is ultimately fulfilled in the the absolute reign of Jesus in his kingdom. Um, There's also Daniel 2. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I, I, I just see the stone cut out without hands, who is Jesus right? Hitting yep. that stone uh, during the time when Jesus came into history and destroyed the kingdoms. He broke, he broke the, the dominion of Satan through the kingdoms of men and just destroyed it. I just love that imagery. And then that, that, sm- that stone became the kingdom. And I just think that imagery is so powerful and informative for our understanding of this psalm. Yeah, and as you consider this, and that it was possibly written before King David, mm-hmm. and then you watch God continue to unfold this mystery, and and that's something we've talked about before, the mystery that is given in the Old Testament being something that was given, that was veiled, that was hard to understand, that wasn't clear what it was talking about. We see God unfold this mystery, and there's notes of Isaiah, notes of Ezekiel, that we see clarified as we move into the reign of Jesus. Jesus starts to unfold these things 
in his life and ministry on this earth. And then the disciples, as they wrote epistles, did what they could to, to clear this up through the spirit to show this is what these people were looking for. And I think getting that perspective of how desperately seems like it's going to be taken as, as too strong a word, but I think it's fair how desperately these people at times wanted this righteous kingdom. They wanted this executive executing of judgment and righteous judgment of God where he would set things right again. And Jesus began that process of being this king that is the son of David, but is also the son of God, that he is restoring this kingdom, not to Israel, as the disciples asked, but restoring the kingdoms back to the father. And, and I think we can even go back to Genesis 11 and look at where mankind seems to thumb their nose at God. And God, they the ark and God says, go fill the earth. And they just kind of all hang out together. And then they begin to consider their own greatness and decide to build a tribute to themselves and show their greatness in this great tower. And God says, this, this is not at all what I wanted from you. And with what seems like the oversimplification explanation, God confounded their language. He confused their speech. But he sent the world moving again. And, I mean, there we have God laughing at them, mocking them in their own greatness and their power. Yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't often see God laugh in the scripture, uh, but there's a part of me that's really joyful that when he does, it's with a sarcastic tone. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we, we have notes of all of that. And then this king that God is setting up, the nations are his inheritance. And we have notes of rejoining the world, making this nation one nation that the real and fulfilling e pluribus unum, right, of many one, Christ rejoining and reclaiming all things back to the Father in himself, and doing that by breaking these kingdoms of oppression of men and of corrupted power. You have a thought? Go ahead. Yeah, I I can't help but think that that focus in life and thinking is so foreign to so many Americans, Jared. Because if you think about what the, the founding fathers of our country wanted to do, they saw a lot of problems in the world. And they thought, man, you know, human government, there's a lot of evil in there. We can... We can be human government, but we can just be better than they were. And there are a lot of things about our founding documents and that were built upon the idea of God as Lord. But, you know, it's safe to say that not all of those men were, were disciples of Jesus in a very strong sense. And in America, we think that we kind of hit the reset button. You know, we were like Ron Swanson. Um History, history began in 1776 and everything else before that was a mistake, right? right. So in, in America, we kind of think that, well, this is, we are the chosen nation, right? We, we did this. We did what Christ was going to do. And I don't think that we have. No. But there's a lot of people who really think that we're God's chosen people today. And the fact that we are trying to fix this thing up instead of focusing on the kingdom of God and realizing that this is a Jesus-sized job, there's a strong temptation for that to become idolatry really fast. Yes. And, and I would say if it hasn't, I would say there's just a lot of people for whom it, it has become that. And it's a danger. It's a danger because they founded their ideas and ideals upon godly principles upon this idea of a creator that is sovereign to all of us. And we answer to him and, and the rights we have 
are derived from how he created us. And those ideas are great. And the foundation of those ideas, going back to two treatises for civil government, the answer to Sir Francis Bacon trying to show kings and monarchy was ordained by God, that all sounds great. And, and as you can tell, it's super easy for me to get tied up in that stuff because you can kind of put God's name behind it and, and take off with it. But it's still a distraction from this king. And it, this has been an interesting study for me as we consider lordship and faithfulness and being a benefactor and a king because it's just not what I've ever known. And this American ideal, uh, we kick, you know, last king we had, we we kicked to the curb. We're we're our own kings, basically. And as you read two treatises of civil government, it's really easy to come to the ideal that we should each be our own king. And we kind of set groups over us to help make sure everybody's playing by the same rules and there's fair play. And you get quotes like from Mr. Madison that said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Well, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, he's got it. Well, be careful when you read the rest of Madison's writings is all I can caution um, because it's it's not gospel. It's not this kingdom. He was worried about a physical temporary kingdom where they were seeking some truth and justice, but they still didn't get it right. And our concern as we look at this passage and we consider why it would have been hopeful, why there would have been hope found in the saying that he will break with break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel was because these governments were insufficient. These governments oppressed people. These governments perverted and subverted justice. And this king that God is going to set up would set those things right. So, Jared, here's a kind of a, a question. I've been thinking too much, as you can probably tell. Uh, so on Sunday, we had a guest teacher, and he was talking about um, peace in Christ. And he made the statement about how if we if we love like Christ loved and, you know, if we exercise forgiveness and grace and all those things and seek peace, then we won't have any enemies. And I think what he meant was that as on our part, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be making enemies. We wouldn't be hating people in our heart. We would love them. And I kind of challenged that brother a little bit after the service. I said, well, you know, Jesus didn't say we wouldn't have enemies. He just commanded us how we ought to treat them. And so I said, I, I think that a Christian uh, can and ought to identify people as enemies if they truly are enemies of the kingdom of God who are actively working to suppress or subvert the gospel, uh, people who are persecuting his kingdom or people who hate us. Uh, they are our enemies, but um, that doesn't mean that we have to hate them. We are called to love them and, and hope and pray for their repent, uh, their repentance. So we had a discussion about, you know, what does it look like for a Christian to have an enemy? And we, I, I brought up that tension of, you know, it's not a bad thing for God to pour out justice upon the unrighteous even though we as sinful people in need of the grace of God hope and pray for their repentance, we understand that it's not bad if God does it. And so I think a lot of times we've been taught as Christians that we should not um, say, hey, you know, they're, they're going to get what's coming to them and that's fair and just. We don't feel, I think, empowered to do that, especially if we look at the example of in the book of Revelation, the image that John saw of the martyrs that were beneath the throne who had been killed for the testimony of Jesus, they cried out to God saying, How long, O Lord, will you not avenge us, uh, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth who were killed for the testimony of Jesus? So I think there's a tension there of us 
not wanting people to be lost. But I think like the author of this psalm says, we can understand that God is going to is going to exercise judgment and it's going to be terrible for those on whom it falls. And while our ultimate goal would be reconciliation with God, we need to understand that for those who hate him and those who refuse to repent and those who refuse to honor God, um, he's going to dash them in pieces. He's going to break their teeth and um, it's not going to be good. I don't know if that was a question. It was more of like a big rambling statement. <laughs> and I think it captures some some thoughts that this idea, this psalm, sorry, should push to the front of our minds. This idea of a king that is going to set things right. If he's going to set things right, there must by necessity be things that are wrong. Yeah. And we can look at the macro in these kingdoms that have things wrong. Uh But that's just a greater example of what's wrong in humanity. It's commonly said that government is downstream of society. And so as societies turn bad, their governments turn bad. And the corruption of the powerful is the most evident to those who are oppressed. But we see 2 Corinthians 5, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Right. And there, I mean, Philippians says, Paul is warning people of those who walk after their bellies that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I brought that up to that brother and also how Paul warned of opponents. He said, you know, Demetrius the silversmith, you know, he wrought much evil. Watch out for these because they are enemies of the cross. So it's not that we hate them. Um, I think we're called to fight our enemies by loving them, um, if necessary, to die for them, just like Jesus did. Um, but again, it's a, it is it is uncomfortable, I think, as us as Christians to think about having enemies and, and kind of being okay with the fact that, yeah, we, uh, we're an armed combatant in a grand war. And uh, there are people who are going to align against our Lord, and we really don't have any choice other than to call them enemies, but treat them as Christ commanded us. So this goes to an idea that, and and really started to take root in my mind back at the start of the pandemic, and this was coming on the hills of observing the last several U.S. presidential elections, how speech was weaponized. Mm-hmm. And the way speech is weaponized is you get a mass to start changing the definitions of terms where you're confusing language, basically, is, is what's happening there. And the idea of love has been warped and twisted and changed where you get this idea of quote unquote tough love when, and I think we've discussed on this on our podcast before that I don't care for that term because love does what is necessary. Right. It doesn't think about, you know, tough love it. Jesus rebuked when it was prudent. He exhorted when it was prudent. He sacrificed when it was what was needed. And as we consider this kingdom mentality captured in Psalm chapter two, that we're serving this King that is subduing the nations of the world. And we're living within this kingdom as we work out the truths of this promise that we're a part of this kingdom. Then we do the same things. We rebuke when it's necessary. We stand in the face of persecution in a way that the world can't understand. We're not riding in the streets we're being fired and arrested and persecuted for saying you're the authority. You have authority here, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do what you say. You imprison me. You put me to death. You, whatever you feel like you need to do, but there's an authority higher than you. And that's the one I'm going to serve. Right. And our world doesn't recognize those things. And and as that happens, because it's, it's happened over and over and over again through human history And that's the kind of things that would make you want 
the fruition of Psalm chapter two and verse number nine to come to pass, these these yokes of oppression to be ruptured and busted and broken to pieces, then God moves and his kingdom shows and his servants show what the promises of his kingdom are. That it's not going to perish. You can't stamp it out. It doesn't matter how hard you fight against it. God laughs at you in derision and he mocks your authority and your power because it's all subject to him anyway. And I don't think that's a, that this action of God is, is going to be a one time at the end of the age activity. No, I, I do believe that God acts in human history to, to correct the nations and, and to break kingdoms who hate him and oppose him. I mean, we see it with the, with Babylon, uh, with Persia, with Greece, with Rome. You can look in more more recent history about there were mighty empires who worked great evil, and where are they now? They're well, God. God took them out. Um, we can look in in modern times of of powers that that reached around the globe, uh, spreading tyranny and cruelty, and they're not doing that anymore. And so, you know, it's it's interesting to observe that happen. And I think that we can observe that. And I think that's really the message of this psalm that we get in verse 10. Like, that's the takeaway. So, like, how do we, you know, Jared, how do we use this psalm? Or what's the message that we take away from this that informs our ability to serve Christ? So there's a couple of things. Okay. The book of Isaiah, chapter 5. That is a, a common passage that is just quoted. Um, there are a lot of people that quote it and don't even know. Uh, woe to them that are right in their own eyes. Uh, substitute wicked for good and good for bad. Those things. Mm-hmm. In verse 16, he says, The Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. And he's he gives this in these woes. God is exalted in justice. You know, and I don't know how many of you have watched YouTube channels of what they call First Amendment auditors. These people go around and, and intentionally seek confrontation with law enforcement officers. Yes. And it, it's a big, hairy mess. I, I watch some of it just, and actually I watch some attorneys that review them just seeing what's going on with law enforcement. There's been a couple of, well, I'll tell you what got me into it. There was a guy that did it to Garvin County Sheriff's department a couple of times um, with some people that I knew. And so that's what got me going. Garvin County is where we all grew up, by the way, if you don't know. And these people are intentionally seeking confrontation and, and just going outside the bounds of law and creating problems for the purpose of trying to, work justice. And that's not what we're looking for. Right. The Christian, the the servant of God's kingdom understands and appreciates that God is exalted in judgment. When, when there's true righteous judgment, God is exalted. And for the Christians from the time of Christ that had to flee Jerusalem, that endured persecution while the Apostle Paul was still teaching, I think of places like Ephesus, where Jason's caught up in the crowd because Paul had been there teaching, and he basically takes the brunt of it. And to things going on in our world right now, judgment eventually comes to those people like you talked about. And, and we're shown in the book of Revelation, in the teachings of Jesus himself, that this judgment of God comes upon nations that that get out of whack and we're not called to take up arms as the kingdom of God, physical arms to fight against these kingdoms where our place is, is to serve the son, to take on this perspective of his kingdom as he is the king. And that's where some Daniel seven comes into play. And there's actually some Isaiah three and four here God declares that Assyria had been the rod of his punishment. God chose them to execute his judgment. Mm 
but they went beyond what he had authorized them to do, and they were going to be judged for it. So even though these people were being judged in God's wrath, the people that were executing or abusing their power and their authority, God wasn't ignoring that, and he wasn't going to let it go, that he was going to execute this judgment. Yeah, Jared, to your to your point about like what what are followers of Jesus supposed to do? You know, we don't we don't strut around looking for a fight or looking to flaunt our supposed rights and then cause a confrontation. Um our, we're called to pray <laughs> for, for the authorities and Titus or excuse me, first Timothy chapter two. Uh, Paul says that, you know, he's, hey, you need to pray for all these people. Verse two, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful or a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And, you know, when you're going and you're poking the bear, doing something that makes the authorities uncomfortable and saying, oh, but I'm well within my rights to do so. That's, I think, an abuse of of freedom. Instead, you know, police uh, should love working with Christian people because they are helpful and they work good wherever they go and they resolve conflict before police have to get involved. Right. So, well, I yeah, think and- that the one of the pieces here that you're hitting on, Christopher, without saying, is the principle of meekness yeah if you utilize the definition of meekness as strength under control meaning you have the ability but you have chosen to bring that into subjection and be wise in the way that you utilize it you know you're not a doormat or anything like that but you understand that you have the freedom as you said or the liberty to do so or that you serve a king that is superior to that of even the, the government that that the police officer or whoever else is involved in, but you're going to be meek in your approach. You know, Jeffrey, Taryn and I, we, we ate supper at Mama K and Papa's last night, and on the way home, Taryn and I were discussing several things this was one of those points. Jesus wasn't meek because he was powerless to do anything. He was the embodiment, embodiment, I'm making up words now. I like that. Let's go with it. Embodiment of meekness because he had the power to do everything. But he did in his meekness what only he could do. He denied doing what everybody wants to do to execute what only he could do like that. And this this idea so in 2 Timothy chapter 2 Paul says a servant the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil. And Paul is definitely throwing back to these ideas of the kingdom. A servant of the Lord you have servants in kingdoms. If you're the servant of God's kingdom you must be kind to everyone. And patiently endure evil. You you stay the course no matter what. Correcting your opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We have this perspective, and again, this Second Corinthians 5 and 6 mentality, where we're, we're changed. We are living in something different. The, the world is struggling to comprehend because it only knows kingdoms of the world. They don't know a king like we know, and they're not going to know a king like we know unless we typify a life that is lived under a king that is absolute goodness, that is self-sacrifice to the point of death in a way that God can't do, the mystery being that God cannot die. And so we're not quarrelsome. But we're, we're going to patiently endure this. And that's one thing, as I talked about the First Amendment auditors, a lot of these people fail because they want to fight the police 
on the street right there instead of saying, hey, you're outside of the bounds, but I'll meet you in court and we'll settle this in a way that is meaningful and peaceful. Yeah. They want to try and have it out right there. Well, we serve a different authority and our authority has told us you don't worry about your rights. You worry about freeing people from the clutches of Satan. And the only way you're going to do that is to live a life that is looking for something transcendent, to be a member of this kingdom that belongs to God, that is not at risk of being invaded, that has an eternal king. And you endure this evil, you correct your opponents with gentleness, but you correct them. It doesn't say you don't, you know, you, you just back up and say, no, no, it's, it's fine. It's whatever you do. You, you. correct them. <laughs> you stand your ground, but you do it in a way that promotes peace. Yeah. Peace through reconciliation with God, not, not going along to get along. That's right. So I know I mentioned it earlier, kind of alluded to it, uh, but I want to come back to Psalm two in verse 10, which I've, I think is kind of the cut of the psalm where the author has made some pretty bold statements about God's sovereignty and how he views people who oppose him, what he's going to do, set up his king. And then we have advice. Uh, psalm 210, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, serving the Lord and kissing the Son. The Son is the one that's referred to back in verse 7, the king that God set up. So I think the immediate, um, that's why I think that there is an immediate, um, if I could say, an application for those who would have resisted the kings of Israel, hey, watch out! These are these are God's people, and uh, you you need to serve the Lord and you need to respect the king that He sets up because He's not going to tolerate uh, the rebellion, and He will exercise judgment through this son who will dash you in pieces. So it's a it's an interesting conclusion that He gives to the contemporary audience here. Yeah, and there's, like we talked about in the last episode, there's always, not always, there is commonly transcendency in poetry. There's this meaning that can be applied immediately in immediate context, and then there's this meaning that can be drawn through the ages. And we especially see that in God's poetry because of his multi-layered and leveled wisdom that is just so much infinite, infinitely above our own. And we have this warning to kings of the earth, not only about being enemies with the physical kingdom of Israel, but being enemies with the sovereign that is over the kingdoms of Israel. Right. And this warning plays out throughout history over and over and over again. We've mentioned Isaiah and Ezekiel and God proclaiming judgment on these kingdoms of the world, the Gentile nations, because of exceeding their bounds that they were given by God. We see it in Daniel where God judges Nebuchadnezzar for not glorifying him and what God had done to set him up right? and thinking himself more than he was. And so there's this warning that goes out from if nothing else from this Psalm and echoes through the world for time immemorial. And we actually see that it kind of explained in second or first Corinthians two, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so these rulers who refuse to acknowledge God's rulership, who refuse to acknowledge God's sovereignty and his authority and the fact that their authority flows from him are going to be judged. And it has happened again 
and again. Nations have ceased to exist because the rulers and the society got to such that they needed to be judged and judgment was executed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, even as Jesus was born, the Kings of the East who had experienced the judgment of God through Babylon came to kiss the sun and they go to the King of Israel and Herod's like, Oh, take me to this King that I can, Kill him. I, I mean, worship him. <laughs> and yeah, it's just from the very onset of, of Jesus' life on this planet, the the kings of earth have surrounded him and, and tried to suppress him, even from inside Israel. If there's anybody who should have paid attention to this psalm, it would have been a king on the throne of Israel. But the Herodians really didn't pay much attention to God. <laughs> right. Do you hear some notes of Peter here? I, I seek to stir up your pure minds because people are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue. And, and Peter's pleading for Christians everywhere to learn the lessons of man's history. God gives us these things. This history that is recorded is for our admonition for our teaching. And we have seen Psalm 2 played out over and over and over again when we deny the sovereignty of our God, and it becomes so bad that our rulers do it. And they shake off or seek to shake off, seek to burst the rules and the counsels of God, cast him away from them. So, you know, Jared, it's, I love to look at the structure of the Psalms because that's the the English major grammar poetry nerd in me. But the very beginning lines of the Psalm are of kings who, to use your terminology, thumb their nose at God, right? They reject the governance of God. They, they cast away his bonds and his, his uh, boundaries. But in the end of it, we have people, and I love verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't often pair the words rejoicing with trembling together. To me, those they're just not two words that I, I associate. But really, I mean, that is the, um, I mean, that's really the, the benefit of serving God is that if we tremble before him with humility, then we can rejoice. But if we, if we, if we bow up to God and reject his rulership, it's, it's not going to be happy for us. And so I think that's a, that's a takeaway I, that I can get out of this for me is the path to rejoicing in peace is to be at peace with God and recognize his lordship. Every other path is going to be pain and suffering. Right. And there's, there's no level of human authority. There's no level of human richness of, of any fulfillment that you're going to find that is going to allow you to shake the authority of God from your life. It doesn't matter where you are. If you live in a palace or as a pauper, God's authority is there. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. It's it's simple and profound all at the same time. So, wow. Well, there's definitely a lot of meat on this bone for such a, a short psalm, but I'm really glad that you brought it to our our focus so we could spend some time meditating on it, Jared. I appreciate that. Um, we'll continue in the Psalms next week, I'll have one to bring to us. I'm, I'm man, kind of like you, Jared, I'm picking a, I have a couple on my mind. I'm kind of going back and forth. So I'll bring us a Psalm next week and we'll pick through it too. And you guys can show me what's in it that I missed. So, uh, but yeah, this has been uh, really faith building to me. So we hope that uh, all of you have also been edified by this. And I encourage you to go into that Psalm and, and the others and, and dig through and if you have a need in your life, there's something that is 
eating at you or if you're struggling or wrestling with a problem, I want to go back to Sister Elise's admonition that her grandmother gave her. Just open up to a psalm, start reading until you find the answer. I talked with a listener this week who just really resonated with that and loved that strategy and was able to use it. And so it's wonderful to see uh, the the wisdom that that uh, Elise shared blessing someone else. And I, I hope that if you didn't catch that episode, that you'll go back and 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 check that one out. I think it was Psalm uh, 110 for those of you who are paying attention to that. So um, anyway, uh, Jared, I think it's your episode turn. 110, not Psalm 110. Oh, it was on one day. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. So we won't edit that because people are used to me being a bonehead, Jeffrey being right. So uh, we'll just keep it in there. But anyway, uh, Jared, I know that it was your song, but I would love it if you could uh, pray us out. Our gracious Father, we close this episode in, in gratefulness to you, just pouring out our thankfulness for your wisdom, your faithfulness your willingness to deal with a creation that has been faithless to you and to work as we get in our own way of having and establishing our relationship with you and being all that we can be in and through you. Father, we thank you for your son and the kingdom that he has established and that you've established in him, that we can be your servants, that we can be redeemed back to you and restored to a place with you where we can dwell with you both now and for eternity. Father, we pray that you would help us to consider the promises that you've given of this kingdom and its enduring nature and the promises that we have that allow us to, to live freely in you and, and live at liberty and be at peace and seek peace with those around us. Father, we pray that you would help us to exemplify this kingdom as we live from day to day, that we would consider it in everything that we do. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we have been forgiven to forgive those to whom we owe forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>